welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. I'm afraid I don't know where we are. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 109, the chapter one fall finale, Into the Forest I Go comes to you now via human life sign masking simulator and some news from the fleet before this episode leaves orbit pete here we are at the end of chapter one we must start by talking about the return of star trek discovery for chapter two on sunday january 7th with all the holidays in between not a super long break and i for one am happy to know that uh, star trek will be back soon I'm glad they made the decision to come back that quickly from the holidays. I was concerned they were going to, you know, push this late January. January would become February, become March. And uh, as we know, work on season two began today uh, out in Burbank. Um, I think it's great knowing, all right, here's when it comes back. We can imagine at some point they will start to have a schedule if they don't already internally have one when season two will air. We're told early, mid 2019-ish at this point, possibility of late 2018. Now, Pete, for those who are a little miffed that they're they're paying for all access uh, and there's going to be over a month without Star Trek Discovery, I, I kind of had to... I had to give some some fill in the blanks here for people to kind of figure it out here if it annoys you that much that there's going to be over a billable month that you won't have anything that you're going to get out of for cbs all access i think you can figure out what to do if that's really something that's concerning you yeah it doesn't really take a uh, rocket surgeon but um okay well, uh, well let's speak to it directly cancel your subscription for now, and then in advance of the Chapter 2 premiere, you know, maybe that Thursday, fire it back up again, and you'll be good to go. I'm looking forward to the people that, now that a chapter is out, getting into this and, and going through all nine, and then getting into the discussion with us. Yeah, I think that's the flip side, too. As we've said from the beginning, okay, CBS owns this show. They're doing what they want to do, their own service, blah, blah, blah. Now you have a month where the the buzz can just kind of settle in. And if you want to try it out, I mean, can you imagine, Pete, having nine episodes to watch in an entire month before you rejoin the rest of the fleet viewing live? Um, It's their experiment to do. Hopefully new new viewers come along hopefully new listeners come along our way and you know it's all good you have control over the content you want to you want to have access to yeah i think it's going to be a situation where though it's a valley in terms of their streaming now they've got this piece out that that people can can jump into and and do in one healthy chunk um, similar to a way like, all right, a, a season would be released on Blu-ray or DVD and, and that kind of thing. And, and people could get caught up. I mean, I didn't watch Breaking Bad when any of it aired and I got to the first six, no, it's five seasons. I got to the first, um, 
four and a half seasons on Netflix. And then there was that last half season that hadn't hit Blu-ray yet that I managed to rewatch someplace. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to see that effect and with people who perhaps resisted getting into CBS all access because, well, I'm not going to pay for another thing or, I don't want to pay week to week. I want to do it. It seemed to be a, a fairly common refrain. Oh, I'm going to do it all at once. Okay. Put your money where your mouth is. With news of, uh, of Disney really committing to their own online service separate from, are they going to buy Netflix? Or are they going to do this? Or are they going to do that? And, and them eyeing a price point that is quote unquote, well beneath what Netflix prices itself at. It'll be interesting to see what reverberations, if any happen for all access, but it's a crowded, you know, it's a crowded pool out there, certainly on the online streaming end between Prime, between All Access, between Hulu, and between Netflix. Pete, speaking of Netflix and Hulu, with Star <laughs> Trek Chapter 1 ending, what's our what's our interim chapter here for Fantastic Geek? No rest for the weary. Uh, we begin recording uh, The Punisher on Netflix uh, this coming Friday, the very same day that it drops, Friday, November 17th. Later on that day, you will find our podcast of the first episode ready to go. Runaways then drops its first three episodes on Tuesday, November 21st. We have no idea what time uh, that's going to take place, but we will be bringing you one of those uh, first three episodes that Tuesday when we'll also be uh, drawing our latest raffle. Worth mentioning, by the way, that we were on the fence about, at least I was on the fence about podcasting Runaways until we saw that pilot episode in New York Comic Con, and it certainly won me over. Surprise, surprise, spoiler, Pete was right again. <laughs> and um, it, it certainly will represent a shift for us uh, from Star Trek to Punisher and Runaways, but we're excited to do it. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. returning uh, in December, so... We're stepping back into that Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, uh, of course, Pete, if we didn't have enough on our plates, we did record the Inhumans finale on Friday. Probably the season finale for that. But bottom line is a ton of fun TV out there, and we're podcasting a whole lot of it. And we'll be bringing you Justice League uh, this weekend as well. Let's not leave that out. It's not just the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Trek where we play. So we'll be bringing you that as well. So a lot going on. Uh, and we've got a kind of beneath the radar thing that's going to hit uh, Patreon in the not so distant future. Very different from what we've done before. So a lot of offerings um, and we're excited to bring you all of it. Well, with the road scouted ahead, Pete, let's now get to our mission briefing. We have a teaser, Matt, for the first time in a couple weeks here. We begin great long shot of the discovery, uh, the, the impulse engines, uh, audible, over Pavo before we have the hologram of Admiral Tyrol, uh letting uh, Lorca know the way it's going to be, Matt. They've ordered all ships back to behind Federation lines. They want uh, Discovery to retreat. The ship of the dead is on the way. And with Burnham, Saru, Tyler, and Stamets all on the bridge there, um, 
Terrell lays it out that Cole's next strategic move is going to be to come to Pavo, destroy that transmitter, and we're going to eliminate any chance the Federation has to gain the upper hand. And, oh, yeah, you can't lose our secret weapon, the Discovery. This is an episode that, amidst other issues, is about, I would argue, a changing perception on the audience's end of Captain Gabriel Lorca. And we see that in the first uh, scene here. He, of course, is not hearing anything of, of joining the retreat. And indeed, he notes that the Pavins seem aligned to the Federation, this in the, in, in the proposed perspective of the Klingons. So he's suggesting that there's a responsibility to protect the Pavins. Now, you may have a pessimistic take on a lot of this Lorca stuff. You may, Pete, or you may, listener. I personally buy what is being offered up here, that this this warrior who knows when to put down the, the sword of war genuinely feels responsibility for this very ethereal and, and by kind of... Uh, humanoid standards is very immature species and they don't deserve to be destroyed for what they has what they have done and uh to this terrell has a solution the best and the brightest from the federation pete they're going to put on their thinking caps they're going to figure out a way to break that cloaking shield but nonetheless get yourself to starbase 46 asap and with that terrell does not wait for the debate he's doing his best how to deal with emotive people he restates the thing get to starbase 46 hang up on the holophone. Yeah, it's it's funny. The character of Taral cast in such a contrast to Lorca, but here he's Federation dad. This is the way that it's gonna go. Uh you're 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 going to come back. Uh your your logic is laid out in this way. You're gonna do this. And um with the threat that exists to the Pavins um, it's Lorca that goes about it with his own logic here, though he tells Lieutenant Detmer to set the course for Starbase 46. They're not going via spore drive, which would put them there near instantaneously. They're going by warp five, so they're going to have some time. Um, and with Saru chirping in here that, you know, he, he knows the vulnerability after his experience with the Pavins, maybe he could speak to the Admiral. Lorca lays it out that they have three hours here. He has no intention of reaching the destination. And um, I think it wise that it comes across in dialogue. If you plan to disobey an order, it's best not to advertise. Okay, first of all, Pete, I'm having a little nerd out moment as as you're mentioning Warp 5 here, which of course I have in my notes was clear in the episode. Pete, are we talking the TNG Warp Factor chart or Classic Trek? Must be Classic Trek. That means they're going even slower than I thought they were. This is even all the more <laughs> troubling to me. I A quick search of Memory Alpha doesn't show the actual chart itself, but I'm, a I'm remembering that chart that's in the technical manual. Pete, they're going really, really slow here. It's slower than I thought. Things are even more concerning. It's a three-hour um, tour, son. It's going to take forever by their standards. Oh, my goodness, Pete. It is a three-hour tour from which they don't return. Oh, my goodness, Pete. This whole thing, <laughs> all the naysayers were right. This is actually just a big, giant reimagining of, of, of Gilgan's Island. Um, also filmed at Desilu or Paramount, as I recall. Um, anyhow, regardless, um, I love this idea. It's this winking, you know... Uh, federation uh, starfleet captain thing they're doing the slow trot back if they find a solution in those three hours you can spore jump back instantaneously um 
also with a complete poker face uh Lorca turns to Stamets saying sorry to hear that your spore interface isn't working right uh, oh yeah I guess it's itchy says Stamets Stamets well wink wink says Lorca get down to sick pay for that full exam and uh Lorca unknowingly starting to sow the seeds of of these lies coming apart here he orders the officially full complete medical exam we need that paper trail which to us is irony of ironies because stamets has been avoiding the good doctor for you know to to prevent all this spore interface madness from uh, from coming to the forefront yeah and what a uh conflict as far as interest to head us into the title card the title card reveals for us that the episode is written by Bo Yan Kim and uh, Erica Lippolt. Certainly great to see Bo Yan and Erica both at the forefront. Powerful ladies, powerful script. Very, very, you know, uh, filled with pride as this episode finally reached the uh, the masses here. And also directed by Chris Byrne. And uh, I was a bit surprised, Pete. It took just the title card sequence, which of course, you, know, you can travel through time in a title sequence, but... With that, we are one hour into the trip to the Starbase, and um, I don't know, I did not think that we would get one-third of the way through that trip so quickly. Yeah, and where's Lorca's solution? Burnham uh, lets him know the science behind the cloak, that there's a massive gravitational field that bends light and other electromagnetic waves around the ship of the dead and the other ships that have been outfitted with the technology. Saru explains that's why they are essentially undetectable to their sensors, but there's imperfections. And of course, Matt, in the long and storied history, the 51 years of Star Trek and the idea of cloaks and, you know, the, the various incarnations. Oh, you can't, you can't fire under a cloak. Oh, now there's a ship that can fire under a cloak. A Federation ship can't use a cloak. Oh, there's a Federation ship with a cloak. You know, all the, all the exceptions that have been made uh, down the line dating back to the originals. And now we're predating that. Um, there's always a problem Or I go back to Star Trek six, you know, the thing's got to have a tailpipe here. It doesn't have a tailpipe, but things need to bend around it and it's not perfect. So what appears like background EM radiation are these near imperceptible shifts that correlate to the cloak's gravitational field. And Saru has the plan here. If if they can determine a correlation between the two, they could develop an algorithm to reveal any, any invisible ship's position. But you've got to place sensors on the Klingon ship. Well, I will quote what I believe is a memory rattling around from the aforementioned Star Trek The Next Generation Tactical Manual. Uh, the notion that part of the reason that there are these supposed inconsistencies between what you can do when you're cloaked and what you can't is this catch-up of they're cloaked. Okay, now we've cracked that. Okay, now there's a new cloaking strategy. Okay, now that's been cracked. So at the end of the day, are they writing inconsistencies or are they trying to figure out ways around it? They are. But I think that the canon answer is, hey, all it takes is some, you know, crackerjack sensor expert to figure out this and now all of a sudden now all of a sudden uh, you know you can fire while cloaked because it's not it's we're protecting this radiation or this gravity uh displacement or whatever it might be but regardless pete you mentioned this idea of of a boarding party put sensors on the ship itself of the boarding party which i in no way saw coming 
who's the first person to like this idea? Tyler is. <laughs> Pete, long-time listeners, if I had it ready, we'd play Coming Home. Um, and, and Pete, our, listen, our, our, our voracious pal, Jen, who loves herself some some Marvel, loves herself some Star Trek. She's a little, she's a little less uh, inclined to believe that uh, Tyler is a baddie. We'll discuss later. I'm still full on Tyler's a baddie. He just don't know it. But he's yearning to go to the Klingon ship. Um, and he's also, Pete, the first one to, to, to note that the Klingons want the discovery. Therefore, the ship can be bait. There's just one problem, Pete. All this calculation and stuff, it's going to take days. Yeah, and as we cap the two scenes to begin this episode with the problem and the plan, um, getting those two sensors over that every time they cloak, they'll gather readings and the days here, we push it forward to the delivery system of uh, the, the salvation, and that is the human spore drive of Lieutenant Paul Stamets. Yeah, really elegant writerly solution here. Uh, and, and indeed, as we head to Stamets there, in the, uh, in, in the medical bay, that paper trail that Lorca wanted being, being delivered here, Culber probably should get more screen time in this episode. I know that last week we discussed that uh, some scenes had been cut, whether it was within that episode, whether stuff moved to this episode, who knows at this point. But uh, Culber is ashen at having found a whole lot more than he asked for. There's a buildup in the temporal lobe, and this is a quickly written scene. They're probably dealing at some end with some sort of upper amount of how long an episode can be. Um, it is airing on broadcast, I believe, on Canada, so that's probably a certain cap. Plus, you just have internal pace. You want to keep things moving. This is a scene that cooks. It is powered by the actors that look so frightened at what has been found. Well, Matt, when Culber lets Lorca know that, uh, hey, you wanted evidence with your navigator of an issue, you've got it. These restructuring tracks in the white matter of his medial temporal lobe, Matt, you were in a different part of the brain. Um, this now creates the problem that Stamets had sought to avoid. I'm a little concerned that Culber doesn't remove himself, recuse himself from this, but they're in wartime. This is a super desperate mission. So I, I think the medical ethics could bend um, a little bit here when we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the Hippocratic oath um, when it comes to a loved one. I think Probably you are correct. Now, should we should we uh, assume that in the future people can separate uh, the personal from the professional to the degree being asked of here? You, that's probably a given. And certainly we're going to see later in the episode where Culber absolutely is an officer first and in a in a relationship second um, as, as duty, as the mission, as the ship calls for. And we see that later, and we'll talk about that in due course. Um, that said, you know, are there other doctors on board? Well, we know there's at least one other because uh, because Culber is not the CMO. Um, so is it a bit of a writerly cheat where there's not the instant? Excuse me, I must recuse myself. Let's call the let's call the CMO. Let's get him out of bed. Let's wake him up. Whatever it might be. Yeah, but I think what are you going to do? Throw 
the guy that you saw in a couple of scenes in the shuttle bay that said, oh, a, a, a space whale, you know, we're, we're assuming that's the CMO because he has a a uh, commander's rank, not a lieutenant commander's rank. You're really going to throw him in this scene that's all about the, the betrayal, the emotion between this couple and the line between personal and private. So, again, if it's going to be a cheat and it's going to cheat towards the purposes of of story, I'm okay with it. Yet Stamets is still protecting uh, Dr. Kolber. He does not tell him about the side effects, which Tilly spoils later on. But he wants, Lorca wants this report here again, that data trail. But then Stamets learns, of course, how many jumps he's going to need to make. Yeah, this idea that there's 133 micro jumps. That is a number. Okay, fine. We heard last night uh, the, the 33, a reference to Battlestar Galactica, which I love. That still is probably one of the greatest, ep- not even probably, it is one of the greatest episodes of the entire series, perhaps the greatest. And to think that it was the first regular season episode, talk about you know starting starting on top. But it's also a number so staggeringly huge that it's kind of difficult to, to comprehend in terms of going putting yourself through this for so long a time it's 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 astronomical no pun intended the whole purpose of these micro jumps is to get snapshots of the klingon ship and Lorca's adamant we need to do this yeah and it's going to take under four minutes but when you consider the the fictional strain that would be placed on oneself by doing this um and, and creating the time to compute this algorithm, it, it's a hefty task. Um, and Lorca, of course, wishes he doesn't have to ask for this, but though he's got a scientist in his ready room here, he knows that Stamets has also become an explorer and he's chosen to go where no one has gone before. Beat that. That's like the episode, you know, the famous episode called a fuzzy thing happened on the way to Antares. It's, it's, it's a reference to that, right, Pete? Of course. But he shows him the map, Matt. He's accumulated. Lorca has all this data from the jumps. And Stamets immediately notices these pockets, these possibilities um, connected to the mycelial network of alternate universes. They're seemingly a pattern. They have coordinates, Matt, And this invention has taken them to places they've never dreamed of. They're going to win the war. And then the journey continues. I'm sure many people are going to connect some dots to continue to show that Lorca is a bad, bad man. And this is one of the key pieces in that argument. I, however, buy Lorca at his word, this notion that He's the warrior that we need now, but he's an explorer too. He joined Starfleet, the peacekeeping organization. He was not inspired by the battle of the binary stars to enlist and to help fight for the flag and things of this sort. This idea that there's this scintillating alternate universe or alternate universes out there. um, It's exploration on a grand scale. This is a grand captain who wants to know peace 
And this is all, of course, under the wonderful, terrible, delicious umbrella of we know there is a Mirror Mirror Universe episode coming. Jonathan Frakes spoiled that in the summer. So it's out there. Are they there now? Are they going to, is part of the journey back going to be to get there? Is the the Lost in Space chapter two, is that unconnected to a standalone episode where they get caught in an ion storm and we see Mirror Mirror? I don't know, but we know it's coming and we know it's coming and we know it's coming. All in good time. One thing I really appreciated practically during this scene is that though they are at warp, um, the reflection of the effect plays on Lorca's ready room stand up desk, which was really something neat from uh, a set decoration detail, particularly the angles that uh, some of the camera work was done in this scene. I'm reminded again of the Next Generation Technical Manual where they make reference to sometimes because they can't do the effect shot of being at warp, at least in Next Generation times, they would have to come up with any excuse to drop out of warp just so they could save money because you put the black felt star field with sparkly jewels on it, shine the lights on it. Oh, it's space out there. Um, here, it's just it's it's a beautiful reflection in in an effect shot. And it all plays to this idea that that Lorca is more than a warrior. He's planning for that post-war universe of exploration. Or is Lorca playing Stamets? A discussion to be had for later. With that, Pete, Lorca calls for Tyler to board the Klingon ship. And Tyler wants to bring Burnham. Uh, Lorca initially says no. And in a super powerful scene, Burnham mm -hmm. calls it illogical. Um, and the fact that they intercut, A, the director intercuts, and B, they have chosen, just storytelling-wise, to have the intercut of of, uh, of reaction shots from the rest of the bridge crew. We have essentially Burnham, who is a rankless, quote-unquote, officer. She's essentially chewing out her superior publicly, almost shaming him in his lack of logic. And with that, Lorca gives the okay. Yeah, uh, with the knowledge here that... Uh, she knows the bridge of the sarcophagus ship, that it's four times the size of a Federation bridge. So there's a time component that's crucial. And uh, when Lorca counters with, well, just tell somebody else that uh, he's being illogical because he's not using the full resources of his crew. I wondered as it was happening whether this was i'm not going to send the person that started the war over to their vessel to potentially end the war I, I wondered if there was a little bit of that and thankfully there wasn't but she points out too that she's there on borrowed time so interestingly enough matt she wants to end the conflict she shares a major piece in creating so she can go back to jail i think that Lorca is is well served in his instinct to not um to, to not want to send her i mean it's kind of like i mean it can't be put any more plainly nor does it need to be metaphorical this idea that she started the war she absolutely did start the war so to send her back to this place it just brings in x factors upon x factors which are uh, which are dangerous that said pete i know whose name comes first in the credits and something tells me you know, even on first view, that she's making it over there, uh, no problem. 
With that, the story moves to engineering, where Tilly lets slip to Culber that uh, she knows about some of these side effects, and that only adds to the pained look on Culber's face, the strain between these these two men. And uh, the good doctor gives Stamets a wrist brace of sorts, which will help with the treatment. A cuff. A cuff, indeed. And that's going to help with the uh, with the treatments as as the jumps are occurring. And then we get what's a time honored staple within Star Trek: the uh, the captain voiceover montage here, pumping them up. They're about to stare down the bow of the ship of the dead. They last fought at the Battle of the Binary Stars that they were all polite scientists when they boarded Discovery, but now they are fierce warriors all. No other Federation vessel vessel has a chance, and that they're all going to look back at having saved Pavo and ending the war before they jump back. Indeed, this is the turning point, and you will be proud to say that you were there. Uh, And this is intercut with Stamets looking as forlorn as he ever has been. Uh, I mean, it's really a wonderful moment because as you say, Pete, very familiar notion of the speech to the troops and people saying, yeah, this is our destiny. Um, And also, quite frankly, easy enough foreshadowing that things are really going to go wrong with Stamets. Um, But it all works together. And with that, Lorca calls for the discovery to spore jump back to Pavo as we end the act. We return for Act 2, Matt, on the bridge of the Ship of the Dead, where Cole is informed that Discovery has jumped in. And I love the diction here that uh, Cole uses. Even when it translates later on with the Universal Translator, we still get these flourishes. He refers to the Discovery as the most enchanted vessel um, and then says they're going to storm the decks and take its storied weapon before they destroy the planet. All this as he's pawing with these disgusting Klingon fingernails that uh, seem to have ridges themselves. The um, Starfleet badge of the fallen Philippa Georgiou. I do not mean to speak in metaphor about Cole. At least I don't mean at this point to do so. I reserve the right to do so later. But the notion that Cole is this orator and he's using these these flowery phrases that really fire up his constituency and keep his people frothing and, and foaming at the mouth and ready for this notion of storm the ship, kill the crew, take the spore drive, destroy the planet, prepare for victory – it's it, it's a wonderful thing that this character, uh, regardless of what his inspiration might be from the writer's room, and I have my suspicions, but this character as a fully formed, you know, creature existing in the in, in the fictional world, he is so charismatic, great actor, great writing, and rare is it for us to get that for Klingons, I dare say. Usually it's, you know, with the exception of Gowron and Robert O'Reilly and those big eyes, you know, it's just oh. kind of like, <laughs> it's a lot of like, let's all act kind of vaguely foreign and Russian. Um, and he just, he plays this character so wonderfully. Kenneth Mitchell does. Absolutely. And they decloak there. The transporter room sees Burnham and Tyler getting ready here. He's got pattern simulators to mask their human life signs, Matt, which just made me chuckle (laughs) there. 
human life signs before they beam over. Wait, Pete, and Pete, Pete, before you send them over, I have to say yeah. I was a little upset by this scene. The camera kind of twisted and twirled a little like the movie that that, that, that bad JJ made, you know, oh, where stop. the camera moves too much. I loved it. The same way I loved the angles we had at one point in the in the ready room. And uh, what are we going to say that crouching when you when you uh, transport, you know, this is this is not Gene's Trek either. I mean, come on. They didn't have people crouching in the 1960s, Pete. It hadn't been invented. This is the quibble with quibbles, Matt. <laughs> it's 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 a super fun moment when they do crouch. I mean, fine. Yes, it's evocative of of. Uh, the, the JJ movies. It also makes sense. How many times has somebody just beamed into a nice, you know, a nice happy cliff on planet death, you know, and, and there's a certain moment where you go, they should be more, more combat ready. And here they are. Um, as you mentioned, there's the, uh, the pattern diffusers that are, that are prominently placed. And this is really where the pace of the episode starts to cook here. Uh, back on the Discovery Bridge, Detmer is told to keep things moving as they buy Burnham and uh, and Tyler time. Always glad to see more Detmer screen time, by the way. And then uh, our heroes are on the Klingon ship. They enter an unused bay. They turn on those shoulder lights, Pete, which I believe this is the first time we've seen them actually light up. And um, a tiny quibble here. They get the first sensor ready and, and they place it down and they press the the go button and it says boop, connecting to discovery <laughs> awaiting end sensor boop, boop. Go i just ahead. want to let our listeners know that matt was the runner up for the uh the voice of the the, the tech uh that bajel barrett uh you know the the grand dame of, of star trek though she was no longer here to do and this unnamed lady that they've gone with Matt Matt was in the running for that, and and you're hearing now why he didn't get it. They, Say they, black alert for us, Matt. They they had to. They, Say they, black they, alert for us. Don't wait for the translation. <laughs> Boop, black alert. Um, they they, they wanted to hire Canadian. Yep. What can I say, Pete? It's an international economy. Um, but anyhow, joking aside, for these slightly loud things, which just throw a mute button on there, even more so when they have the one on the bridge later on. Um, and I don't know if that's a quibble against like the in-universe technology or a quibble against like the storytelling decision to have it so audible that said things need to be visual and audible since it's a visual and audible medium. So I don't know where the quibble is, but throw a little mute switch on there. Um, I do like though that it makes very clear by, by saying awaiting end sensor, it's making it very clear that they are not halfway done through the job. They are 0% done until they have both turned on. Yeah, and having dropped off that first piece here, and they're on their way to the bridge, and uh, Burnham's tricorder goes off. She's detecting another human life sign. There was no intel that pointed to that because, of course, Tyler knows there's no intel. Uh, but they're not supposed to deviate. It's not far from the bridge. Uh, Burnham is adamant here about bringing everyone home. Uh, so when they come to a door and uh, Tyler gives her 60 seconds to open it, of course she can't. He takes a knife out. He did spend seven months in a in a Klingon prison. I, I, I'm not quite sure why that's relevant right now, Matt. Um, and and cuts through the uh, the fiber optic wires there before they find uh, Admiral 
Cornwell amongst a bunch of smoking bodies. And is that Laurel in the corner? Pete, that is Laurel, as a matter of fact. And uh, she sees Tyler. She recognizes him saying, it's you. And there's the briefest snippets, and we get more of it as the episode goes on, of course, but there's the briefest snippets of his presumed torture scene. I'm not going to commit to that as the final presentation, but certainly the initial presentation absolutely meant to be the beginning of him, him I don't want to say remembering, but let's start with this pete let's treat this as presented now and save the theory for later does that make sense absolutely it's clearly as it's said later in the script here post-traumatic stress disorder um using what we have cornwell can't feel her legs something that comes up um within the rest of this rescue mission tyler is completely unfocused at this point unnerved by having seen laurel uh to the point where burnham has to stun her i did think it went on a touch too long of him freezing and her tending to cornwell before oh hey there's a klingon alive in here and my boyfriend hasn't stunned her yet i'll just take care of that um but cornwell's uh presence in the scene helps to refocus this she has burnham state the mission uh she as a therapist and and that's where i really love her backstory coming into this scene she knows enough to know tyler is in shock he's not going to be of any help anytime soon so this is really two tough ladies one of whom can't walk on her own right now and burnham has to get to the bridge and take care of things. So she leaves Cornwell with a phaser before Discovery will beam them out when the time comes. And not just two tough ladies. I mean, we'll throw Laurel in there as a tough lady too. But absolutely, the, fo- the focus of my of my comment here is that Cornwell, who in many ways is not even many ways, I think objectively is the most worst off of of everyone in that room, aside from the dead, you know, desiccated bodies. She's the first one to be able to regain her her rank, if you will. She's trained in just the you know the experience of life. Uh, if if you're listening, Jane, clearly you're about 29 years old. The way you appear on screen, you're lovely. Um, <laughs> Jane Brooke is a, a wonderful addition to Discovery and and Star Trek overall. But somebody who clearly has experience in command, as you mentioned, Pete, in mental health and in you know, running a crew and in assessing a situation. And we see all of that here. Um, and then it kind of, it, this all gets dispelled a little bit as we get a wonderful exterior shot or, or VFX shot of, um, of the, the, the battle that's going on with the discovery flying around. And I love that this exterior shot becomes an interior. We go mm-hmm. in through the, the, the glass of the Klingon bridge, the discovery clearly flying circles around these great warriors, Pete. It's a tremendous transition there, especially during this battle. And as Burnham places that second sensor, Seru informs the Discovery, and they go to black alert. Um, you mean the 
uplink to discovery established. <laughs> little little nice uh, audio yeah. thing there. I think they made the right call going with that that nice lady, Matt. You, you, you have you have silver pipes, but clearly not in in that context. Um, so now they have to get the ship of the dead to cloak. Uh, and Burnham now is listening in, and I love the little bit of lag with the universal translator, um, and, and we get the the snippets here from the bridge, particularly Cole, um, when he's told that they're, they're uh, moving around here. Uh, you know, he, he says, this is the fabled power, and they go to cloak, uh, and then we get this tremendous jump sequence. We do. And right before that, when we're uh, in engineering, the, the, the jump timeline has come or, the, or you know, the, the moment has come to start the jumping. And right before that sequence, Stamets tells Culver that he loves him. Heartfelt moment. And, uh, and Stamets twitches in pain. And his close-ups are properly scary as these jumps are occurring. And uh, we quickly hear that we are only one quarter of the way through the jumps. And it really seems, I mean, you mentioned it's four minutes, Pete. My, my way of looking at it is this. Everybody listening probably has had, you know, has, has had a needle put through your skin for, for medical purposes. How long does that really last? I mean, the, the pushing through your skin is a fraction of a second. Can you imagine four nonstop minutes of that? That would be an unending amount of, 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 of pain. And I imagine, I imagine that's what he's going through on some, on some level. Regardless though, Pete, we head back to the Klingon hold where Tyler continues to be in shock. Um, I wasn't quite sure some of these intercut shots. I have to go back, Pete, do a, a frame by frame thing, which by the way is difficult on the CBS all access website because they don't let you pause and retain full screen because they didn't want people doing screen caps anymore. So that was nice of you. Um, but I'm not sure if all the faces, I don't, I'm not sure that every face that we see is either Tyler, the human, or Laurel. I need to go back and check that. I think there was an, 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 an unhuman third face in there, perhaps that of Klingon Tyler. Uh, I mean, listen, have I paused every frame on my iPad to do that? Um, I got to have something to do in, in these couple weeks off, Matt. Uh, but you know, it is loaded with forget the, the, the nightmare later on and, and what happens towards the end of the episode, there's loaded imagery in these flashbacks that, um, Tyler is having, uh, memories that, uh, are, are surfacing all the while back on discovery. We're counting down. The jumps were up to 62. And Matt, you had wondered on Twitter as we're both watching this, um, you know, in, in different locations here, the, the sad music is ramped up. Uh, Stamets is suddenly hallucinating. There's a clearing in the forest. That's how they go. And you were even wondering, not aloud, but verbally, like somebody, somebody in a go in this episode i started to be worried at this point in the episode that they were simply going to kill off stamets and that was going to be the big shock and he said but, but anthony rapp is this is this fixture now um 
let me just say this, Pete. If they kill off Stamets from this timeline, I think it would be easy enough to get another Stamets pretty quickly so Anthony Rapp can continue <laughs> to be in the show. But that's for later. There's a there's a gravity and a severity in what's going on here where, let me put it this way, they will be ill-served if back in episode, you know, as soon as we return back in episode 110, you know what, Pete? Thank goodness that the that the the anti-spore uh bath in the back the tank worked he's back to his regular self like i'll buy that with cornwell and there's some sort of spinal injury where she can't she can't walk it's the future it's merely a matter of re-knitting your your you know your nerves and whatnot they're giving us in the music in the acting in the shot choice in the in the reactions from culber they're giving us a large degree of irro- irrevocable uh, damage done here. And if he's okay, 20 minutes into the next episode, it'll it'll have been a bit for naught. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you on the cost here. Culber wants them to abort. He's saying that the sinonatric uh, nerve that uh, of, of Stamets is, is firing at over 200 per minute. Call it off. And Lorca won't do it. Stamets is staying the course here. And uh, Culber administers a, a real-world medication, digoxin, uh, which is a heart medicine, uh, to, to stabilize him at, at this point as the act breaks. To me, the key bit from this scene is, is rather an interplay to the I love you earlier, to the hurt and concern that Culber had at the top of the episode. Culber wants to call it off, as you noted. It's Lorca who overrides him. Lorca who quickly explains that there are literally trillions of lives hanging in the balance. And Culber is ordered to keep Stamets alive no matter what through the jump sequence. The the unspoken implication being if you need to keep him alive through this jump sequence, knowing that it will kill him, that is the order from the captain. That is what needs to be done. This is the needs of the many done in, in, in what I dare say is a serious and believable and wartime type scenario. And, and we see it exacted with full effect here. Act three, Matt on the Klingon bridge, and they sense that there is possible sabotage near the burial chamber. Cole says it's probably Laurel, and he wants her legs cut off, and then he'll deal with her later. I don't think he's using metaphorical language there, Pete. Um, it's at this point where where things are about to ramp up, including. Uh, unbeknownst to Cole and company, but known to Burnham, these guards are about to be sent to the place where where Tyler is, where Cornwell is. So Burnham fires uh, a stun shot at the Klingon lackey. Don't forget, stun is blue and uh, kill is red. Um, she says at this point that she wants to talk, and she says it via the universal translator. Um, he hears the, the translated voice, and he is impressed with her Klingonese, my word, but, you know, Klingonese. Um, and then she steps out showing her human ingenuity, showing that it's the universal translator that lets her speak this way is proof of her desire to communicate. Nay, Pete, the desire of humanity and of Starfleet to communicate. Of course, the Klingon who doesn't as strongly identify with being Klingon as, say, Takubma and his torchbearers, 
But uh, Cole says that this is merely a method to rob them of their identity. Um, and here she is making his point on their ship, an interloper. Um, he took to Kuvma's place, she points out. Uh, and the way that maybe Burnham hopes to take the place of the, the one who left that badge there that Cole great affectation is now picking his teeth with. It's, it, I mean, it's just a wonderfully powerful scene and, um, Burnham outs Cole as not having worked to get this ship. Um, he wasn't there when, when the ship was taken. And, and how does Burnham know that? Because Burnham was there, mic drop, she killed Tekovma. And uh, with that, we cut to that, uh, that holding bay on the Klingon ship where the, uh, the guards are there to kill Laurel. Cornwell is firing back. Uh, she's imploring Tyler to act, and eventually he does. First pushing her aside, Pete, and I said, oh, no, the double cross. But no, 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 he's merely stepping up here. He kills a Klingon uh with uh with the klingon's gun we know that because there's the, the the green uh uh disintegration back to the bridge we go where cole notes that burnham must have lost her captain he's putting it together who this must be he thanks her for killing Takovma for helping cole elevate himself through the power vacuum and we get this presentation again of Cole as somebody who is not particularly a man of conviction but rather a man of circumstance he even says the thing, Matt. He says, lock her up uh, before uh, the the fight goes down here and saying that if they can return with the killer of the Messiah, even to Kuvma's torch-bearing fools will fall in line. But Burnham wants her shot here. She, she commands, do me the honor. Um, and... Uh, with Cole placing the badge on himself, which I had to wonder what the what the legitimacy of that was. Uh, he throws her a knife and he accepts the challenge of the human. It's a it's a good fight, though not a great fight, at least at first. Uh, Burnham initially gets kicked away, and then you you can tell she has the taste of blood in her mouth, and I mean that both literally because she has a bloody lip, but also you know she's really ready to fight. And uh, at this moment of highest tension, we cut back to the discovery. The jumps are concluded, and the computer needs five minutes to crunch all the data. And uh, Lieutenant Awokashan suggests jumping away, but Lorca notes that, hold on, the Klingon ship isn't firing back. Something is up. A reminder, Pete, that Lorca here, he, he's not the dad who's cool enough to drink beers with you in the garage. He's the dad who actually teaches you tough life lessons and uses them when you need it. Uh, back on the Klingon bridge, Burnham uh, is doing better in her fight against Cole, but gets choke slammed into the railing. All the crew in the background chants, Cole, Cole. Yeah. I love that they don't cut away to the crew chanting and doing fist bumps and Arsenio Hall. It's... <laughs> It's it, it's just there to be heard, and it's they're not going to take away from the timing, kind of the, the reality of the timing of the scene to cut away to that sort of thing. Yeah, and when it all goes down amidst the chanting there, Burnham slashes his knee. Saru punches up that algorithm. Boop, it's been five minutes, and they beam over first 
Cornwell and Tyler, who uh, brings Laurel in tow because she decided the moment the transporter pattern began to give him a, an old hug. It's an inspired moment, a fun moment. I think that despite the the awful and terrible uh, flashback information that we will get concerning Laurel a bit later in the episode, we want to see more screen time from Mary Chifo. We want to see more uh, from Laurel. We want, quite frankly, to further pull at this at this uh, loose string of Tyler and his nature and what happened to Vok and so on and so forth and losing everything that Vok did. Um, it's all just wonderfully, wonderfully coming together and made possible by her, by her jumping in on the, uh, on the beam out here. Back we go to the Klingon bridge where Burnham is told to prep for beam out. Uh, she's able to grab Georgiou's, grab Georgiou's badge. She jumps midair. Here's your action shot. Here, quite frankly, Pete, and we carry no one's water but our own. But here is where this money that we're paying for this show, here's where mm-hmm. you see it being spent. Because she just could have, she could have crumpled in the corner and said, emergency beam out. And they could have, you know, could have been, Cole is eight feet away and he only got seven feet there before she's all beamed out. No, no, Pete. She jumps off the railing into midair, beamed away, hero saved. Take us to the Discovery Bridge, Pete. Saru updates Lorca on everything that's going on here. They've got everybody back along with a Klingon prisoner. Um, and it's a great moment. One perhaps seated early on with the damage to Lorca's eyes, but before he's going to deliver the death blow, he's, he's got to worry about the, the eye protection, Matt. He puts the eye drops in and then they fire. And there's just this moment on the Klingon bridge where cold knows it's happening this way. He can't tweet about it and he's got to just yell. And this slow-mo montage of the bridge uh, blowing up um, and the view from the discovery bridge and particularly the close up of the fallen captain Georgiou's badge with her serial number on the other side, make all the more worthy of this nine episode journey. And why did Lorca put those digital eye drops in so that he can stare into the exploding sun of the destructed exploding ship to, to, to overcome this, uh, this great foe and to, to see it with his own eyes damaged as they are. And it's all just an incredibly powerful way in which to end the act. Act four begins with Admiral Taral on the video conferencer, Matt, explaining that uh, Admiral Cornwell's emergency shuttle has arrived at Starbase 88. She is in surgery. She's expected to make a full recovery however there's nothing wrong with this scene at all we get a bunch of uh frankly necessary minor story elements tied up i'm certainly glad the cornwell is going to make a full recovery we did not need to have a montage of her making it back to starbase 46 nor of her going into surgery we don't need to have a lengthy you know scroll unfurling when Terrell says that Lorca will be given the Legion of Honor award that he will congratulate him in person it's all important information but because it is so much information 
A, it's a scene that exists for expositional purposes. That's fine. The fact that it is on video screen and not the hollow phone makes me wonder, Pete, was this a pickup shot? Did they realize that they didn't, whatever would have been here originally or whatever was not here through error, whatever it might be, you know, to grab the, to grab the actor, shoot him quickly, run it through a video effect is a whole lot less planning a whole lot less um money a whole lot less effort than your normal 3d shots where the camera is moving and you know which means that you shot without him with the camera moving and then you shot with him on a green screen moving and matching up the motions and so on and so forth so it's okay if you have something that doesn't work it's okay if you have you know have a scene that fixes it i think that we see the slightest bit of evidence here as to that being the case with this scene I've been so pleased with the visuals on this show that I'll in, allow the incongruity of, you know, either the decision or the the outcome to have to go with the the old Skype uh, Starfleet version here. Um, it's been 11 hours since the uh, destruction of the ship of the dead, and uh, they are refining the um the algorithm to send it out to the rest of the fleet but there are cloaked vessels advancing on federation space and on the discovery um and despite the increased chance of victory we're we're still kind of walking on eggshells with tyler in the hallway there matt i don't know if you caught it but a cadet decker was paged to the ready room um, and we know that that's not Matt Decker. Who would it be then? That would be uh, Will Decker, Matt. Uh, assuming you know we're not randomly uh, shouting out a a Decker, the eventual captain of the refit Enterprise from uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. So he's on the Discovery, at least by name. That's a nice little addition there. I, I must confess, shame on me. I had not made the connection about the younger Decker there. Um, we we have back on the Discovery here, back back in the hallways, we have uh, Burnham seemingly kind of wandering to see Tyler, and that's not a criticism. I, I don't think she quite knows where her feet are carrying her. Um, Tyler gives her all the credit for the win, and uh, she notes that he has been putting up a facade in his time on the Discovery uh, what? For, well, but not faking? The, no, not the, not that facade, Pete. Burnham is talking about Tyler's past being a prisoner, and he says that Laurel's the reason that he has nightmares every night, and also the reason that he's uh, still alive. He made a choice to survive, and uh, he he admits that she was more than his captor. Laurel was his torturer, and uh, he also found a way to feed into her, her sick affections. And what we have here is an incredibly moving scene and one that wipes away this podcaster's knowing sneer of the Vok theory and one that pulled me into the view of his present pain, the present pain of Tyler and the echoes of his past. And I mean, it is truly a moving scene. And with all this discussion out there concerning abuse of power and sexual abuse and sexual assault, it, it, it certainly is timely. It's tragically meta is what it is, Matt. Um, even the, the phrase you mentioned about the, the sick affections, 
he confesses to having encouraged it as a means to stay alive. And granted, the, the Hollywood stuff and the, the stuff in other corners of, of power, um, not done with mortality, but more so, uh, you know, trying to get the attention of a, of a celebrity, of a producer, of, of somebody in a position of power. What more power than a captor over their prisoner and to, uh, to, to use everything at your disposal in, including the idea of companionship to, to stay alive. That's difficult. Um, if it were not done with this shadow of, well, where's Valk been? Funny how Tyler's, you know, come to the discovery, everything that's gone on here. And then Laurel comments and, and the nightmare, you know, we'll talk about in a couple moments. It would be one thing. With all of that, it just has that other deep, deep meaning that we continue to be fascinated with. And I'm kind of glad they didn't cut it off here at the end of chapter one and, and give us definition on it. It's certainly, it, it helps zag against the zig of this theory. And, and I've wondered in the past on the podcast, you know, how, how mature is this writing room in terms of being able to play chess with the audience, but not knowing what our, what our reactions are in real time. Um, to know that this entire season ha has completed shooting, unlike, say, Lost or shows like that where people are going bananas over episode 11 and you're in the middle of, you know, you're in the middle of writing episode 18 and you're shooting episode 15 so you can make these changes on the fly if you need to. They don't have that storytelling luxury. I give them then all the more credit to really dig into this this culture of abuse Uh I dare say they couldn't have known how timely it would be. Um, and I think that to show what is traditionally, to show here what would traditionally be a, a flipped gender situation, I think adds to, certainly it helps me understand the tiniest little bit better this this sick culture of abuse that, that, that you and I thankfully both know so little about. Um, and I think from a storytelling point of view, and I don't, I don't mean to kind of make light of, of it as entertainment or say, oh, Star Trek taught me things on this awful topic. But from a purely storytelling point of view, it was just so incredibly powerful. And I like that they're letting it be what it needs to be in this moment, regardless of what theories might, might uh, occur down the line. With the subject of peace found here amongst Burnham and Discovery and even the planet Pavo, another great transitional shot here coming out through Stamets's eye. And we're in the Discovery shuttle bay here where Lorca reveals they wanted to give him a medal, but he has suggested they give it to Stamets. Um, and they're ready to warp here. Uh, but they're going to make instead one more spore jump. Um, I, I love to this. It, it could not have, have been written this way, but it takes on a, another meaning in a scene that has multiple meanings uh, afterward, a scene that has multiple meanings. But when Lorca says, uh, yep, after this, it's a whole new chapter for discovery. 
he, he knew about chapter two, Matt, coming uh, Sunday, uh, January 7th, uh, 2018. I like that it also um, opens up the possibility of, again, this undercurrent, which I, I at no point I'm going to commit to in this episode, but this undercurrent that Lorca knows what he's doing. And this word of ending the chapter, yes, it might be a writer's room nod to how far the season has come and how it's continuing the next the, the next section of story after this but also maybe it's Lorca who is prepared quickly to put the war behind him and to really be an advanced explorer um but let's focus on this jump Pete Stamets makes it clear this is only one more jump he needs to be looked at by Starfleet's best doctors he needs it they need to find out what has happened to him and here we have the muted kind paternal Lorca who understands and uh and, and he understands that there's that one last jump and it's just to escape the Klingons and uh, they are then, they're, they're going to prep that jump before we cut to Tyler dreaming. Yeah, I mean, the, the cynic in you is certainly, yeah, one one last jump. This is all going to work out. It, it, it's, it's set up too perfectly for it to uh, work out. But then the the scene with Tyler with the nightmare um, and and we'll spare you the details because you you've watched it but suffice to say it's more than we've ever seen in Star Trek before let alone in, in a televised episode of Star Trek but he wakes up and Burnham is sleeping there um, and he heads to the brig where Laurel in her prison issue uh outfit there um he he kneels before her and wants to know what they did to him specifically what she did to him she says that she will make sure they never hurt him which the show if nothing else fully committing to reading things either way and there's a bit of a response to my question what is the maturity of the writer's room Doubtless they know which way the wind is blowing on this particular topic of, of Tyler and Vok, but they are committing equally to it and giving us, giving us uh, plenty to pour over. I also want to mention Pete in terms of the costume design. I initially thought that she was physically shackled. Uh, that is not the case, but I really, really suspect that the costume here is meant to be by implication, some sort of, you know, when you push the button, the, the metal aspects which are uh, which are running parallel to the to the floor that they will bind her in some way just the way those stripes occur I think that's mm-hmm. what we're meant to pick up just from costume design whether we see it or not I don't know but this scene has to wrap up Pete because black alert is announced well no it's command stations not black alert and again another reason why you didn't get that gig um, but she tells him as he leaves there soon. January 7th, not soon enough. Back to Stamets and Kolber uh, and Lorca in the midst of their embrace says over the comm there. With that, he announces he wants to dock the weary Wessel, Matt. You know, we are just above Pavo. Pavo Chekhov, maybe. Um, but he's he's ready to go. And um, we get the 
really nice follow up from the the story about how Hugh Culber and Stamets met with the humming of Kassalian opera and Stamets wants to make it up to him for everything he's put the good doctor through, uh, that, uh, moon near Starbase 46 has the most esteemed Kassalian opera house. They have La Boheme currently playing. He'll even sit through it with Culber, uh, you know, right, right after this jump when he has all that time on his, on his hands, just right after this jump. Lorca on the bridge seems to input some coordinates. Uh, I know that we've seen at the at the con station there are some there's some aspect to driving the spore drive. We've seen at some of the the uh, stations uh, against the wall at the rear of the bridge. There's some stuff going on with the spore drive. Never, Pete, have we seen Lorca driving the spore drive? So, are you implying uh, mischief? I'm implying the show wants us to see mischief. When we get to the theory segment, I'm not going to be arguing that Lorca is a baddie at all in this episode. I'm prepared to be wrong, but they want to plant the seed here. Um, regardless, the jump is made, but clearly it's off. And uh, we are told quickly through dialogue that it was an incomplete navigation sequence. How we about the this... effect, too, of the quickly two discoveries with the with the spore jump effect? Ooh, I didn't catch that. Yes, there's a split, and there are um, instantaneously two that then snap back into one. Oh, man. Like they're looking in a mirror? Hmm. In engineering, we see the spore chamber seeming to frost over. I'm sure it's meant to be kind of more of a spore growth uh, aspect there. Um, I was convinced, Pete, we were going to see Stamets die before us, but instead he's pulled from there. His eyes are, are, are glazing over as well. He's seeing, he sees all these different options, all these different scenarios, and very quickly we're, we're heading towards Chapter 2. Saru is unable to confirm their position at all. Um, nobody seems to know where they are at. And Lorca even wonders aloud, is all that wreckage around them Klingon as we pull away until chapter two? Pete, we have another threat analysis coming in. Let's start with Cole. What can you say about Kenneth Mitchell's performance? He's chewed it up all season. I'd hate to think this is the last we're going to see of him. And if some of the stuff that we're going to float in the theory segment is possible, then he could show up. A version of him could show back up again only because he was taken from us, I think, far too soon. Um, the, the, the Klingons, like you mentioned, you know, Gowron and, uh, you know, maybe even going to, a uh, a Kalar or anything like that, you know, they were of a particular time, this, uh, coal, this, uh, opportunistic military, uh, you know, what, what can you call them? But a charlatan, um, really is something to behold it kind of clicked as i was going to bed last night and i and i tweeted this at kenneth mitchell and i'll, I'll read thusly so to review 
Cole duped pro-war religious fundamentalists into supporting him. Then he ignored them under a Make Klingons Great Again mantra, which was a cover for him to make cloaking deals and build his personal power. I feel like this all came into focus in this, <laughs> in this episode. We've seen elements of that before. None of this was a brand new presentation of the character. I think they were leaning and leaning hard into, shall we say, a metaphorical presentation of some other individuals. And I think they just... They just went for it in this episode, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, that's what I got out of this was that's who this guy Cole is. As you mentioned, Pete, he's just a complete charlatan. Yeah, and you juxtapose that with Laurel, someone who came from um, not just an ideology but a practice of that ideology. Um if Cole is meant to represent certain people in our world, then Laurel is the, the feminine yet tough version of someone who would be aligned with jihadists. You then add to it this really stark presentation of, of sexual abuse um, as shown in Tyler's flashbacks and you have to like Laurel less. Is she still an awesome character? Yes. Mary Chifo, amazing actress. And Mary Chifo deserves all kind of the positives of Laurel. And now we can separate that from disliking Laurel a whole lot more, um, which is an interesting tact for the show to take story-wise because irrespective of the things going on in the real world, there's no way even in a even in a time without these these stories and the headlines in in the real world uh, so often um there's no way to kind of excuse or contextualize or, or quote unquote make cool her her behavior in this regard so they're kind of they're kind of damning the character to say this is a villain while also um I don't know, still giving us a really compelling presentation that gets to continue because there they are out in the great beyond with Laurel in tow. With long range sensors bringing in all sorts of theories, Pete, to the point that we can't quite fix our position. Where do you want to start, Pete? Let's start with this. Are we in the main story universe as the episode ends? Absolutely not. Well, that was easy. I mean, we've had this we've had this mirror mirror universe experience um, floated. I love the idea that the show has now um, stranded the 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 fair ship discovery with all its resources and with hail hail conquering heroes that they're separating them from that and really throwing the ship out there. Yes, shades of of Voyager, but this notion that they are that they are lost in space. No pun. Well, I guess pun partially intended, but I, I love it. It's a great way to elevate the stakes. Whether it's the mirror mirror universe or not, and certainly in light of what um, happens to Stamets as the episode's closing, he notes he sees infinite permutations. So it, if it's not the mirror universe, that could be a, a jump or an intersection away, whatever you want the, the, the idea to be. Matt, I really think we are looking at the creation of the Mirror Mirror Universe. I know that's a theory that you've you've mentioned before. 
part of me almost is nervous with that notion in terms of, first of all, can you go from the Federation to to the ISS Enterprise in 10 years? Well, I don't know, Pete, uh, let's see, 12 and a half months ago, I would have said, no way, there's no way that you could see, <laughs> you could, you know, I laugh, I laugh so I do not cry, you know, I, you never, I, I wouldn't think that you could see the, the, the decay so quickly now. Okay. I'm not, I'm not too sure, uh, as to whether that could occur, but it, maybe it could. Um, I think regardless, bottom line is this, they have such wonderful storytelling opportunities now that they've taken away just about everything that has made the show uh, work in the first nine episodes. That's super exciting. Is Stamets becoming the traveler from the next generation? Not everything needs to be a thing that connects to another thing. Some things can just be their own thing. Um, there's a reason why Admiral McCoy helped see the Enterprise D off and then never came back because these new heroes needed to, to tell their own stories. Um, I'm okay just knowing that the Traveler is a weird species that that likes to help out uh, uh, professionally impotent or, or technically impotent uh, engineers who literally don't know that what they're doing isn't working. Um, that's good enough for me over there. I also think the Traveler, while memorable, is not quite the deep cut character that would require a Traveler backstory. I'll ask you one, Pete, given that we are going to deal with with uh, other universes and given that we know that there already is another Stamets out there and maybe they've been jumping back and forth between bodies or something like that. Will this Stamets die? No. Wow. So bold. I'm going to say maybe that maybe this Stamets dies. Surprise, surprise. Nice Stamets comes back in the same episode. Uh, With everything that goes on with Tyler boarding the Klingon ship, uh, having the post-traumatic stress disorder when he sees Laurel, um, the, the nightmares, the flashbacks, and again, the, the loaded things in those flashbacks, while some of it might seem clearly of a torture angle, Matt, were we witnessing Vok's transformation surgically into Tyler? Yes, I think absolutely we are. Here's the thing. I said earlier, the show is giving us 50-50. It could go this way, it could go that way. That is to feed the 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 rumor beast, to feed online discussion in a, in a healthy way, in a wonderful way, in, in an engaging way. Here's the thing, though. If the show says, oh, as it turns out all along, Vok died in that thing that we'll see later on, and Tyler has always been Tyler, um we're never going to trust the show again when they try and do a big sneaky thing in the future um let's use this episode let's use this episode with uh with the gravity of stamets if if something like that happens in the future after we've made it clear that vok and tyler were two totally different people and that was all that was always just a ruse well, then in, in an episode where, oh, man, is, is Stamets going to die? Oh, my goodness. Are they going to kill off this character? Oh, my. I've, I've grown to love this character. Now they're going to kill him or her off. Well, no, it's not going to be real because remember with the Vox stuff, that wasn't real either. So even though they're 50-50 in terms of condemning or freeing 
uh, Tyler from a connection to Vok, the fact that they're having the discussion means they want us to, and they can't they can't go back on that and have us expect to buy the next one and the next one and the next one. You had floated the Manchurian candidate influences on what we see. I'm going to go a little bit more recent and to TV, Matt. There's definitely a Homeland vibe to this Tyler storyline. Again, if we're going to take it on its basic principle, not even digging with well, what is the context of what we saw? You know, there, there literally is a surgical saw in that sequence. Why he would be tortured with a surgical saw as opposed to they were cracking open his sternum and taking out extra organs. And, you know, we've, we've really never seen uh, Klingon uh, medicine. So that uh, in and of itself could be fascinating and yes, there are writer's room solutions to, well, here's how his anatomy now looks this way. I know a lot of people pointed to stills of, maybe that's why the desktop of uh, CBS.com this week, suddenly you weren't able to freeze the image, but not on other devices. Um, the, the image of the medical readout above Tyler, uh, he's human, he's human because it's there. Really, he, he would get back onto a, a Starfleet vessel and not undergo a medical physical uh, to make sure he's OK. Like they had to have safeguards if if he was going to infiltrate Starfleet. Yeah, as we both said to people on Twitter in this past week, you can solve it in about 30 seconds of filming, if not 15, if not 10, if not five to sit and go take out the third spleen, uh, do the human DNA resequencing. All you need is some bloppity blop stuff and some purple lights and three lungs. Somebody needs two. to eat the extra spleen though. Oh, I think that, I think that's a given. I think that's, that's probably, <laughs> that was, that, that, that probably was what, uh, what, uh, was brought to the table that evening. Um, it's totally believable from a writer's point of view in a show where, you know, in the real world, scientists don't think that mentally in terms of your brain pattern, your brain electricity, whatever, um, in terms of the medical things that contribute to your soul, you know, transportation probably is not realistic, says some scientists like neurosurgeons and that type. If we're going to accept that, then we can accept that they can medically do something as minor as reorganize your guts. I mean, they can reorganize guts in the real world. They can take out a heart and put in a new heart, lung transplants, et cetera, et cetera. If they can do that with our clunky medicine in 2017, surely they can space erase a third Klingon lung and redo your this, that, or the other to make the rest of you look human, um, to pass these physicals and things of this sort. So I am unbothered by that medical image from last week's episode. I'm also similarly uh, unbothered uh, from a storytelling point of view, although I'm deeply bothered as a viewer, with this this notion of the torture and the physical and the sexual abuse of Tyler. Um, Was it sexual abuse if Valk and Laurel had gotten together or that she had feelings for him, but the, the mission supersedes and then their relationship was consummated with an unaware or partially aware Tyler. 
Well, I think that you get, and, and, and it's so prescient, you get to the heart of the matter with what you just said about unaware. Um, the Tyler that we are seeing, I believe, believes in himself, believes in Tyler, believes in the human. Uh, through that lens, I would call it sexual abuse. And I don't mean to bring things down or be overly uh, using the, the, the important language of the day in, in an inappropriate way. But the Tyler that we see is not able to give consent or not kind of that full consent. It's under duration. So let's just say lack of consent there if, there's, if it's duress. Um, I also buy fully into this Manchurian candidate notion that he has been fully reprogrammed. This is not that he puts on his, his Tyler face in the morning, nor is this that he, he, he knows deep down he's Vak. I think that we can now re-examine the line of you need to give up everything. It's not just give up your Klingon nature. It's to give up your, your personal nature, your, your self-identity as Vak. I think that's all been wiped away for a ticking time bomb to be revealed in the second half. Um, so that Vok shall return because Vok is buried in there somewhere, kind of winter soldier style. But in the interim, I buy Tyler's pain and Tyler's abuse and, and, and Tyler's tears. Pete, in closing, here's one for you. I am firmly at this point, I don't know why, but I am firmly pro Lorca, pro cool dad Lorca, pro <laughs> you you did it, you overcame the hurdle that you had to. I got the most out of you that you didn't know was possible, even though I had to make it be be a challenge. Did Lorca has Lorca set up a series of events by which he's manipulating Stamets for his own purposes to get them out into into the great beyond so the warrior can be a legendary scientist and explorer as well. I saw the manipulation that was going on there. I, I think a good captain knows how to speak to different members of his crew to push their buttons. And and I don't mean that in a in a negative connotation. I, I mean it in, in a positive one to, to get the most of everybody. What really has me thinking was him touching the side of the captain's chair right before the uh, the final spore jump and then where they wound up. So is this the vaunted ambition of Gabriel Lorca? Okay, we're headed back. It's, it's potentially going to be peacetime. I need that next challenge in my life. I need that that next leg up oh, let's let's see what's out there without the the blessing of starfleet or the uh knowledge of my crew and really foraging ahead um that's something i've not considered and i can't fully rectify how i would feel about it i i, I maintain that Lorca is a presence on this show for while we have him if that makes sense Oh, it does make sense. Uh, I think by the end of the season, somebody's going to have to pay the pound of flesh. Uh, I hope it's not Lorca, who I grow, who grows on me more and more. Um, but I guess time will tell. With that, Pete, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Matt, we're going to head first to Twitter, where a uh, direct message from Just Thinking, that's at JST underscore thinking reads, hello, 
I guess you must already be doing the Discovery Episode 9 podcast, but I had lots of thoughts about the idea of Lorca being Vok after it occurred to me today. Like, it would be pretty nasty of CBS to use PTSD as a red herring on Veterans Day weekend when we are reminded how many vets are committing suicide each day. If they have any sense, they would not. Also, a calm Laurel telling Tyler that she will not let him be harmed fits more if she knows Lorca is in control of Vok and if she is reassuring Tyler as her pet human. And Lorca's actions make sense as Vok. Take on Tyler immediately at his side, destroy Cole ASAP, send Admiral Cornwell off to be captured or killed, and refuse to rescue her. Really, if he is not Vok, sending a friend to her death to protect himself makes him beyond our sympathy. I think, and cripples our character. Uh, so, could it be true? And if so, why is he so concerned with Burnham? Well, let me start with the notion that um, the show should or should not be constrained because of uh, an episode releasing on Veterans Day weekend. I suspect that they probably started to write this episode or at least started to plot out this episode well in advance of knowing the exact date that the first episode would have come and then do the math from there. So while I will agree with you just thinking that it would be in poor taste to have the, the anti-veteran explorations, you know, the exploration of how, how veterans are awful, um, that that would not be an appropriate storyline as an extreme, not that any one of us is suggesting that was this episode, um, but that would be inappropriate for Veterans Day weekend and Remembrance Day weekend. I, I think it's just a coincidence here that we have some of those issues. Um, it's the timing of, of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that it falls on that. There's no way like, all right, we're working on the big episode. Now it's going to end chapter one. That'll air on such and such a date. There's no way that's meant to happen. If what just thinking is suggesting that, that it's Lorca who's Vok, um, it, it's just the, the timing of it that, you know, seems callous when there's no ill intent meant by it. And here's the one thing on the Lorca is Vok theory. I went back and rewatched last week's episode. We had mentioned in the podcast uh, the sound of the Tribble uh, trilling as uh, as uh, Lorca is in his ready room. I want to say on the holophone with Terrell, though I can't quite recall. Mm-hmm. That's uh, one of A rewatch shows that sure enough, th- there is a Tribble in the shot as he walks by. So yeah. I- I won't confess to know the distance at which a Tribble gets upset, but I dare say he was with, within it. Uh, could you figure out in the writer's room a way to still have Lorca be a Klingon in a, a way that the Tribble doesn't know it? Yeah, but then you're kind of stepping on this territory of things that we know won't work in the future do work now and vice versa. You can get away with it with the 
cloaking device because, as I mentioned before, this kind of catch-up, get-ahead, catch-up, get-ahead uh, nature of, of the cloaking device. But me, personally, I'm going to say Lorca is not a Klingon. And I would agree with you. Pete, we had a tweet from uh, our pal Lorianne, that's at Sci-Fi Geek NJ, somebody who we have had the pleasure of seeing probably three, four times at uh, various New York conventions. Uh, she says, I loved when Lorca put the drops in his eyes so he could keep them open whilst the sarcophagus ship exploded. Then Pete, in a in a moment of brilliance, Lorianne includes the sunglasses wearing emoji. <laughs> Um, she like, goes on to say, maybe I'm biased. Lorca is my fave. I also think when he spoke of exploring after the war ended, that speech speech was very Star Trek. I think we so badly want to believe him that Jason Isaacs was cast against type. Um, you know, The Patriot has been on so many times this month, and, and that's a movie I continually find myself drawn to, usually in the same 25 minute block that I've caught last time before something else pulls me away, whether it's a podcast or all these shows that we watch or life. <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd love to be able to take him on his word and reconsidering what you pointed out about the, the console when they made that jump. I just don't know. I mean, I don't even buy the guy came from a family that made fortune cookies. <laughs> Wow, that's uh, that certainly is an extreme level of distrust, which is odd because I have this weird extreme level of trust for him. Pete, the final tweet here comes from Trek Versus. That's at Verse Trek. He says, I loved Cole. Kenneth Mitchell does such a great job. And uh, Trek Versus goes on to say, I was bummed out when we got no more Cole. Uh, appears they ended up in the Mirror Universe. This will be very interesting, as it's always been just individuals over there, uh, a cloaked cloaking device once, so a ship will be new. Well, considering this time of year, I'd say be good so you don't get coal in your stocking, but with the potential move to an alternate universe, uh, there's always the possibility we'll get a little bit of coal in the new year. Uh, I know I said the last one, but here truly is one more last one. Uh, Jen Phillips, 721 on Twitter, our pal Jen, she, uh, she kind of revised her, her, um, her theory here about, uh, about Tyler. She says sleeper agent theory rejected. If uh, anyone needs me, I'll be in my bubble. And, <laughs> and, uh, as I responded on Twitter and as we've, we've mentioned in the podcast, you know, what if he doesn't know he's a sleeper agent? I think that's I think that's the best theory out there right now that that he does not know, and then it becomes this even better story question: What do you do with him? Like, if it's clear yeah. he's a bad guy, then you throw him in prison. The end. He he stays in prison or he gets returned to the Klingons or whatever whatever that is. He leaves the Discovery. If he doesn't know, well, then I don't know what we do, Pete. Yeah, it, it, it's murky at best. And, you know, where where does blame lie? Everything like that. I just think, I mean, if we can agree that Tyler is Vok and Vok is Tyler, okay. It's a question now of awareness of um, his identity. And then there's the 
psychological aspect of what you desire. So he's having nightmares of, of Laurel, um, and, and the seeming abuse that went on there. But, um, you know, is that something as a relationship with Laurel that he wanted that under the identity of Tyler seems like a violation, seems like something he doesn't want to participate in. Um, all the, all the loaded lines, uh, in, in the last several episodes are, are these elements of the personality drifting to the surface and, and, you know, are not intentional yet because of the way the psyche works kind of bubble up. I think it's really fascinating and, uh, you know, no pun intended, just a, a pregnant place to examine the character for the next couple episodes. And all of that is why Tyler must be Vok. You, you, you leapfrog away from all of that if it immediately is shocker of shockers. We get the Vok flashback storyline from Laurel, who now is confessing to, you know, to whoever is taking, you know, to Lorca or whatever. Oh, Vok was killed there was a mining accident okay so now you lose all this rich stuff for tyler who and i don't mean to take away from the pain he's feeling but that's one level of story where he's recovering from captivity and abuse this whole notion of who is he and and, and there's a schizophrenic aspect that's much richer for the actor for the script for the show and i think that's why we're headed there on the topic of where we're heading matt I'd like to direct all our listeners to set a course for patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Uh, as the bill comes due for our bandwidth for the year and, you know, listening to us create what is undoubtedly our longest Star Trek discovery podcast to date. Um, that's going to be a fairly hefty bill. So anything you might do to help us with that and bring this to you, uh, would certainly be appreciated. Everybody who contributes gets exclusive podcast content. Uh, like we said, there's something brand new uh, coming for the first time ever in the not-so-distant future to Patreon that you're probably going to want to be involved with. So uh, thank you if you've contributed. And uh, even those of you who can't, we're still thankful for your listens. Indeed, especially this time of year where that bill does come in. We are so appreciative to have the help, to have our crew all together. So please do uh, do check it out. And if you already are a patron, thank you. You have more goodies on the way before you know it. But Pete, the best gift of all is being able to talk to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. 9,626 followers can't be wrong and while i am personally on twitter as looking back lost you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you like we are fantastic geek that's fantastic with the e and the h visit fantasticgeek.com email fantasticgeek at gmail.com check us out on twitter and instagram where we are fantastic geek as well but wait pete there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek all one word with the ph like it today our discovery a star trek podcast by fantastic geek will continue 
in December as we chart a course between this finale and the, the start of Chapter 2. In the interim, if you're listening to us on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, as mentioned before, we have Justice League coming, we have Punisher coming, we have Runaways coming, we have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. coming, and apparently there's another space-based movie that's going to be happening in December (laughs) as well. Um, Good, because I could could use a change between Thor in space, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in space, Star Trek in space, I'm glad that we get another space battle movie coming soon. In your face. With that piece. I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final chapter one word. Then the journey continues.